you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. So many times people ask me to share what my favorite episodes are when I talk about the Win-Win podcast. And I always feel like it's choosing a favorite child, except the children are the world's most prominent thought leaders and are sometimes double my age. I have to say, though, Emily Hayward epitomizes the notion of innovation as a practice being as successful as the innovation mindset itself. She is the co-founder and chief brand officer at Red Antler, the leading brand company for startups and new ventures, and has worked to build your favorite companies, including Casper, Allbirds, Betterment, and Pros. Emily's accolades include being named as Most Important Entrepreneurs of the Decade and Top Female Founder by Inc., The Cult Brand Whisperer by Fast Company, and Red Antler made their 2018 list of Most Innovative Companies in Marketing and Advertising. Emily's company, Red Antler, actually collaborates with companies to weave in brand into core business strategy versus making it an afterthought. Her new book, Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One, was published in June 2020 and is a great place for you to continue on after today's episode. Without further ado, here's Emily Hayward. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Uh, You may or may not have heard, but we always start this podcast going back to the beginning of our guests' roots and journey, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about yours. However, perhaps the most notable beginning of your story happened in 2007. Some other key events that happened in 2007 are Apple announcing the very first iPhone, Nancy Pelosi is elected as the first female speaker of the Congress of the United States, And my personal favorite, the final Harry Potter book is published. So in this iconic year of 2007, amongst the things I have listed above, you also co-founded Red Antler, the leading brand company for startups and new ventures. So what was your precedent for starting the company? I love knowing that the final Harry Potter book came out that year (laughs) because I remember it arriving and being so immersed in it. So that's just a very joyful fact that you just shared with me. Um, But going back further than that, I had started my career working in traditional advertising and got an amazing education working on some of the world's biggest brands at huge global agencies. And my job was mainly to come up with large-scale national TV campaigns for brands that had been around for a very long time. And I learned a lot about the process that goes into creating marketing campaigns and how you need to understand who your target audience is and what they care about, ensure that you have a clear strategy that guides the work. But where I grew frustrated is I felt like we were being tasked with coming up with new things to say about products that hadn't changed. And I looked at the world around me, all the ways in which emerging technologies were helping businesses find new ways to connect with people, be more relevant for the people they were trying to serve, and felt that that's where I wanted to be putting my energy. You know, I didn't want to be coming up with something new to say about an old thing that may or may not be relevant, and instead really wanted to go further upstream. So when the New York startup scene was just getting going, which was another thing that was happening in 2007, my co-founder and I saw an opportunity 
to build the first creative services company that was designed to work with entrepreneurs and to really ask the question of, can we bake brand into a business before it even launches? Because at the time that was not happening. So as you start working with these brands, I'm sure a lot of these startups are saying, we need to get a product out there. Um, That is our priority. What role do you think brand strategy plays in enabling innovation? And specifically when a company is small and just starting out, what was your role in that? So when we first started Red Antler, there was a lot of pushback about the idea that businesses even could or certainly should think about brand before launch, right? The ethos of the time was very much around like the lean startup, get out there, ensure you have product market fit, then worry about your brand once you're reaching scale. I think what it boils down to actually is how you define brand. And if you just define brand as like a tagline, right, or even a logo, sure, wait, like get out there, see if it works, and then invest your money in a right. you know pretty design. I think for us, the way we see brand is actually having total clarity around what your business stands for and why it matters to people. And if you think of it that way, it actually sets you up for success and is a driver of business growth. Because what it means is that before you launch – You have a clear idea of what you want to stand for and then all the ways that you communicate and interact with people and bring your business into the world are reinforcing that idea. And, you know, I think, look, there are certainly examples of products that were just so phenomenal and so innovative that they were able to launch with a, you know, initial version of their brand and get a lot of traction and then have the opportunity to evolve as they grow. I think that is Fewer and far between, especially these days when it feels like a new company is launching every single day. The barriers to launch a new business have never been lower. You know, we all have access more or less to the same technology, the same resources, the same ability to get out there, get our message in front of people. The difference becomes, are you telling a clear story about why people should give you their time, their money, and their loyalty? And then how do you see brand evolve with the companies versus, you know, a one-time launch or a um, announcement of a, of a new brand? It absolutely evolves. And again, it goes back to your definition of branding, right? Because ideally you're not, you know, changing your logo every year. You, you want some things that remain consistent and that people can identify with. But at the same time, brands are living, breathing things. You know, the media landscape is t- constantly changing. Culture is changing. And these businesses are changing. You know, most startups are launching with one thing with the intention of becoming many other things. So as their business expands, they need to continue to invest in brand and make sure that the brand is reflecting their offering and their new target audiences and ultimately who they're becoming. Some of your key clients that you've worked on are brands like Allbirds, Casper, and Pros. While these companies are really well-known now, when they were starting out, how did you approach tackling the challenges that they came to you with or perhaps pitching yourself to them? So I think Casper is the perfect example of a business that proves that thinking about brand before launch can be a driver of success. Because at the time, there was a lot of skepticism about whether consumers would even buy a mattress online, sight unseen, right. one model, right? Like there was so much about it that was going against the norms of the industry. When we had all been trained, you need to go to a showroom and lie on a bunch of different mattresses and decide which one is right for you. And there was a lot of like 
fake scientific language and jargon and just things that were there to ultimately confuse consumers and get them to spend more than they wanted to spend. And if Casper had not paid attention to its brand and its story, I don't think we ever would have been able to get people over the hump that they could spend $800, even with a good return policy. Like it's still a huge deal to have this box arrived at your house and like get you got to put your old mattress somewhere while you're testing it out. It's not an easy thing to commit to, but people fell in love with the brand. And you know, the founders came to us because they knew that that was going to be the difference in their success, right? They had to put something out in the world that felt totally antithetical to the industry and that got people to take that leap of faith. And that was brand. You know, it's it's great. We can talk all we want about how good the mattress is and how comfortable it is. People wouldn't have believed us if we had put up some like test version of the website. I personally own a Casper mattress. And I remember telling my mom after having a $200 Ikea mattress, like, I have to get this specific one. And my trust and guarantee came from the brand. And I think that Casper is really, you know, the textbook example of that. But something I wonder about, though, is obviously all these companies have seen immense growth and success. And now we are seeing almost like the other side of the spectrum. And, you know, they're facing criticism about their business models and questioning their valuations. So what do you believe the future of D2C to be? And how can these companies retain some of that initial success they received based on things like brand and design? I think we're already seeing a really positive shift around fundraising strategy. And I think a lot of the challenges that some of that first wave of D2C businesses faced just came from raising too much money, if I'm going to be totally frank about it, you know, because it seems like, oh, why not just raise as much as you can raise? But I think that what a lot of these businesses learned is that then sets expectations for growth that sometimes force you into a position where you're having to compromise um, the values that you set out to launch with in the beginning. But if you look at examples like Allbirds and Pros, you know, both of those are businesses that have incredible differentiation in the market. And that to me is what lasts, right? Like there, there's no other business that offers anything close to what Pros offers. And for those not familiar with it, it's a hair care business that literally makes your products made to order based on hundreds of factors. So you are getting a formula of, you know, whether it's shampoo or conditioner or your hair mask that nobody else has. It's based on your zip code, your exercise habits, your eating, you know, and obviously your hair goals. And because it's so personalized, their retention numbers are just insane. You know, people get this product is better than anything they've ever had and they, and they stick with it, right? And, and pros right. are growing like wildfire, you know? So I think you're right if it's just about, you know, slapping a cool brand on something that isn't really offering anything new. We're going to see businesses that, you know, sort of crash and burn just as quickly as they rose to success. But I think the businesses that are delivering true value to their consumers are going to continue to build their audience and, and become incredible successes. And they some of them already are. Considering other kinds of companies that don't have this incredible agility, like a lot of the new ventures that you work with, a larger Fortune 500 company brand and product and strategy sit at completely different ends of the organization and are missing those opportunities, quite frankly, to work together that you are talking about. If you were to consult a larger company, how would you go about that? We do do work with larger companies. 
And I think the ones who are able to work with us successfully and achieve what they're setting out to achieve, which in many ways is disrupting themselves, recognize that they have to break their own rules. Um, you know, so to me, that means like, yes, of course, you've got lots of layers in the organization and different teams. You have to create a team within a team, right? You basically need to set up like a small entrepreneurial pod that's empowered to actually make decisions. And if they're not going to be empowered to make decisions, then you need the decision maker finding time to devote to whatever this project is. Because I think that where things end up getting watered down is when you're sort of muscling your way through layers of hierarchy. And I used to see it happen all the time in my old agency days. We'd come up with a great idea. It would have to be sold up the chain, like, you know, through five different layers of people with everybody putting their little stamp on it. Then it gets to the top. The head person kills it. It's like bounced back down to the bottom. I used to call it shoots and ladders. Right. Then the creative team is totally deflated and you end in a place that's just weak. Um, You know, to have that boldness, that clarity of vision, you need a small empowered team that can make decisions quickly. I think something that drives a lot of companies to actually act on these things and I guess, quote unquote, become more agile is crisis, right? At this point, before they go bankrupt or a COVID-19 breaks out or a 2008 crisis breaks out, that's really when they feel the urgency to act. But actually, something really notable about your story is that your company has now survived through two different crises, too. So how do you believe crisis contributed to your specific um, industry and company as well as innovation as a whole? Yeah, I mean, going back to our 2007 reminiscing, you know, it it felt like an exciting year until it felt like the worst possible time Time to start a company. business. And I remember heading into 2008 and my co-founder JB and I were just like, what have we done? Right. You left our corporate jobs, right? (laughs) Oh my God. Totally. We were terrified and we were so worried that we weren't going to have a single client that year. And it ended up being an unbelievably busy year for us. And I think the reason for that is because amidst the global financial crisis, a lot of people who were graduating from business school who normally would have been taking jobs at banks and consulting firms ended up starting their own thing. Obviously, I think that both the global financial crisis and COVID-19, I never want to just say like, yeah, that was a great time for us because for many, many people, there was incredible suffering. And I think that needs to be first and foremost what we acknowledge. But I do think that times of hardship lead to innovation and that innovation could end up benefiting people. You know, in this past year, we've seen so many new businesses approaching us in the realm of financial technology, in the realm of healthcare, you know, really thinking about those core institutions that we very quickly learned we could not rely on for safety, stability, happiness, and thinking about how to disrupt them. And, you know, such an opportunity space because these companies are commodities oftentimes, like the insurance, the fintechs of this world. And what an opportunity space for you. Totally. And, you know, again, I think, you know, we become known a lot of times for the most like buzzy consumer goods that we help launch. But we do a lot of work in categories that might be far less sexy or might not look as pretty on Instagram, but are really looking for ways to solve big, big problems. 
Right. And so how do you feel like COVID-19 and this year specifically been different from 2008 as far as affecting marketing and branding? Yeah. I mean, I think that in 2008, you know, there was a lot of energy around startups, right? It was still pretty early. To your point, like iPhone had just launched, like we had not even really made the move over to mobile. And like, there was a lot of just, you know, it was like the beginning of Web 2.0, right? There was a lot of experimentation and openness and excitement for what these new businesses could achieve. I think now we're living in a time where like, there's a little bit of backlash and people are feeling like, oh, another new company that's like trying to get my attention on Instagram and like, what's next, you know, direct to consumer, what? Like, so I think that companies found themselves in a trickier position during COVID of just like how to act, how to behave. Is it okay to send a marketing email while everybody's like going through this, you know, international crisis? Um, but to me, the companies that that made their way through successfully are the ones that acknowledged that, you know, obviously like March and April, it's like take a break, let everybody just like adjust to the breathe. Yeah. But, but then after that, you know, a lot of people were stuck at home and had had many of the ways that they used to like seek pleasure and enjoyment connection removed from their lives. And I think companies, they were able to step in and and help with those little moments and interject with just distraction or happiness or, you know, whatever it might be are thriving right now. And then when you you mentioned the era of when emails were inappropriate, but there are many things that ha- companies in general do that fall flat, and every brand really makes mistakes. So how does a brand recover, and do you have any interesting examples you could share? I My clients never make mistakes. Red antler, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I think it really depends on like what kind of mistake we're talking about here, right? And I think that we've certainly seen a lot of rightful reckoning, I would call it, over the past year um, of companies where, you know, they were out there talking about one set of values and then it turned out like behind the scenes, they very much weren't living by them. Does that fall under the category of like a mistake that you can just say, whoops, I'm sorry? Like probably not, right? You really need to make substantive change in those cases. But I think in general, from small to large, it's about, you know, candor and humility and then action, you know? And I think people are really sick of just like the false promises and like the clearly written by a PR consultant apologies that are not followed by substantive moves to the point about brand, that's when the difference between a logo and an actual brand where a mission is really defining how a brand conducts itself, anything from HR to the words that they put out there, right? Totally. And I think your internal brand is just as important, if not more, as your external brand. Like your employees are your most important consumers because if they're not like living and breathing the values every day, why should anyone else believe it or care about it? And a lot of these companies that we've spoken about have boards of directors and fiduciary duties. And what do you believe is the trend around actual tracking and valuating brand versus performance marketing? So I am on a mission to erase the distinction between brand marketing and performance marketing. And I 
think, look, obviously there are two different disciplines. And I think that, you know, initially branding is about creating that foundation and making sure that all of your owned channels are operating as strongly as they as they possibly can and telling the right story and connecting in the right ways. I think once you move into the realm of marketing, you know, there's very much this feeling right now that like we're either doing brand building and awareness or we're doing like trackable performance. And mm-hmm. I just think that those days are over. Like everything needs to drive to success. More or less all your marketing is going to be measurable to a certain degree. And I think your performance marketing needs to be brand additive. Like it needs to tell the right story, you know, sure. Cause you run a deal every day for a week and, and spike your numbers up. Yes. But what's the ultimate like erosion that that's going to create and how are you going to come back from that? So I think we have to start bringing those things together and, and seeing them as one objective, which is to drive business success through the creation of lasting, powerful brands. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, you know, some of our really loyal listeners will know that, uh, you know, multiple months ago when I started this podcast, I was still working on in brand and marketing strategy. And I remember every time I applied for a job, it was like, well, what kind of marketer are you? Are you a performance marketer, a growth marketer, a brand marketer? And I was just like, oh, my God, I don't know. <laughs> At this point, I just don't know. And why should you have to be one of those things? Especially because it's harder and harder to like beat the algorithm, you know, like everybody's kind of got access to the same tools at this point. So it really is creative and storytelling that, that has an impact. You yourself, you know, as part of Red Anther, you talk to a lot of, I'm sure, companies that are really tech focused. And I'm, I can imagine that a lot of those conversations are very male driven just due to the nature of those industries being male driven. Um, you've had incredible accolades as a powerful woman, amazing woman, all these different female driven accolades. So, how have you handled that? And what have been the biggest challenges of the gender piece in your story? So, I think I've been mostly very fortunate to be surrounded by men who, if they aren't thinking about things in the right way, at least listen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I'm very lucky that I have not had that many interactions with just like totally sexist assholes. Am I allowed to say assholes? Totally. Very much allowed. (laughs) You know, there have been some, but it's not like my daily existence. But that being said, everyone has blind spots, right? And I think the reason why, one of the reasons why any kind of diversity is so important is because it brings other perspectives to the table. And I have often found myself in being in the position of having to point out to a group of men plus me that like, hey, maybe that's not the best idea. You know, maybe we shouldn't launch a women's version of this product when there's no difference between the main product and the quote unquote women's version, or, you know, maybe you should not adopt like a feminist icon as one of the symbols of your brand when you're an all male founding team. And all it would take is like one quick Google search for people to recognize that you don't have a single woman on your leadership team. You know, the story doesn't hold up. Exactly. So I do find I'm in that position quite a bit. 
And it's always a little uncomfortable, right? Like I, I, it's, it's awkward and I feel insecure being like, as the woman in the room, I don't think that's a good idea. But I also feel that it is my responsibility as the woman in the room to make sure that, that people are opening their minds and thinking about these things differently. So I have to overcome that self-consciousness and recognize that like, if I don't say it, no one else is going to. And then what about back in good old 2007, you were a first time founder, you switched from, you know, a madman industry, the advertising industry, was gender any sort of consideration or challenge at that point? Or were you just focused on launching your company? I think that I felt very challenged at my last job in advertising. Truthfully, like in my last job, I felt the effects of sexism pretty poignantly. And without naming the agency, I will tell you that they put out like a book that was internal that was supposed to be about their new creative philosophy. It was supposed to get everybody excited about like the new attitude of the agency. And the book was called Hold My Skateboard While I Kiss Your Girlfriend. Ouch. Yeah. And all the women working there were like, what? Like, Whose perspective is this from? What kind of attitude is this putting forth? Well, it's also even like it's a specific kind of man, right? Like it's not even – I think it's offensive to everyone at this point. It was so gross. And this is one of the world's biggest agencies. And this was in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that was part of why I felt like I just had to get out of there. Um, so it's not like when I was starting Red Antler – I was really thinking about my gender. I think it was more that I didn't want to be working in a place where it felt like my gender was a barrier to success. How did it all play out? What was it like being a first-time founder? I mean, at the time, it was just really exciting. And I think that we felt we had nothing to lose. And I certainly told myself at the time, if this doesn't work out, there will be a job in corporate advertising and I can just go back to that, right? Like Mm -hmm. it felt like at least for the first year, you know, I could just go back and apply for a job and and probably get one. I think that, you know, obviously the further and further I got, the less likely or appealing that seemed. Um, But I don't know that I was even conscious of how much I didn't know. So I think that as a first-time founder, like I was just loving the ride And Mm -hmm. now looking back, I can see all the ways in which I was really naive and young and the mistakes that I made that I wasn't even aware of at the time. And then another thing that happened throughout your career is, you know, before we started this podcast, you mentioned that we may hear a screaming child in the background. So, you know, you have your own company. It's not corporate America anymore. And you also somewhere in between then and now have a child. So how did do you plan for that or how did you account for that in also running a company? Yeah. I mean, it's been intense for sure. I have a two-year-old, um, you know, and we had been talking about having a kid for longer than that, right? I think like a lot of people, the moment we decided to have a kid was not the moment that we got a kid. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not an Amazon delivery. <laughs> exactly. Um, and also, you know, I'm married to a woman, so that adds a whole other layer of complication. <laughs> Another non-Amazon delivery delivery. Exactly. Um, but, you know, it was something that was always 
important to me. And I also think that it's really important to me to, as a business owner, model for my team the value of setting boundaries. Um, You know, like I am done every day at six and the team knows that because I want to spend time with my son before he goes to bed. And, you know, my wife is with him most of the day and I do bath time and bedtime every night. And like, I just will not be on a client call after six o'clock, you know? And, and I think that for me, that's about setting an example that it is okay, especially right now during COVID, but even under normal circumstances to state your limits and to enforce them. Yeah. And I mean, you don't see men oftentimes having that same discussion um, about childcare. So I think it's it's another whole added layer of that responsibility as a woman versus that responsibility as a man. 100%. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like the old cliche, right? But nobody asks men, like, how do you balance, you know? Having- how do you do it all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And, and some of the really amazing answers that I've heard uh, women talk about here, the fact that you don't really balance it at all. It's like, what's going to win on day one versus day two? Definitely. And I think COVID has added a whole other layer of complication. And it's very depressing to read these articles about how much women's careers are suffering more than men's right now. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really scary statistics all around and in regards to domestic violence too. So I don't want to end on a very depressing note. Uh, So I would love to ask you one last innovation question before we go. And that question is both about yourself and your industry and of course, Red Antler. So where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? So in terms of myself, I actually think one of the things that defines me as a human is that I'm not strategic about my own life trajectory. And I come from a background of brand strategy, but I think that when it comes to my own life, I learned pretty early that you know, you can have all the ideas in the world about like what you want your life to look like. And it's very rarely going to turn out that way. And actually the surest path to happiness and success is being open, right. And not having too fixed of an idea of what, you know, maybe a month from now, I have a good feeling. I'll probably just be at home doing exactly what I'm doing right now, but like, <laughs> you know, five years from now, like I, I don't know. So to me, that's, that's part of, the excitement and, and sort of the journey that I'm on and, and really being open to all possibilities. I think in terms of our business, you know, a month from now, looking forward to kicking off a new year, hoping that that's a year in which we can see each other again. I'm really looking forward to just making some plans. <laughs> <laughs> yep. See you there. I'll be on your calendar. <laughs> Exactly. And meeting some clients who I've never met in person and team members who I've never met in person. So I think that'll be a year of of rebirth for sure. And then as I look towards the future, you know, we we launched a performance marketing company called Good Moose a couple years ago. And really the reason we did that was exactly what you and I were talking about earlier around bridging the gap between brand and performance and improving that it's not one versus the other. And you're not constantly like sort of putting budget towards one at the expense of the other and then vice versa, but then instead they can be brought together. So I'm really excited to see how that relationship can continue to add value for our clients. 
And I'm also excited to think through like where else we can innovate. You know, we can't sit still. Our business is launching new businesses and what it takes to launch a new business constantly changes. So we have to always be looking at our own offering and ensuring that we're putting our energy towards the places that are going to have the most impact. And that keeps shifting. Well, thank you so, so much for being here today. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.